episode 15, Designing for Better Health Outcomes. Today, I'm talking with Gail Zotz. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. When I first began speaking with Gail Zotz from Censorate, I realized exactly how siloed I have been in my healthcare career. Because when Gail started talking about design, I immediately just assumed she was talking about graphic design, which is not the case. There are other kinds of design. For example, sensory design and also product design. It's these kind of designs that Gail has spent a lifetime understanding how they impact healthcare outcomes. And at this point, there is immense amounts of research which substantiates the the impact of these factors on healthcare outcomes. And I find this really interesting because when I think about healthcare outcomes and impacting healthcare outcomes, I probably do what most people do, which is focus exclusively on, you know, six sigma best practices. And what Gail is talking about are the things that surround that, the influences that impact the patients in other in other ways. This interview certainly enlightened me about the other things that matter, and I hope that you find it as eye-opening as I have. Welcome to the program today, Gail. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we are honored to have on the show today someone who is an expert in a field which I really know very little about, and that would be sensory and environmental design, but I'm going to let you explain it, Gail. Yeah, it's really the what we call the intersection of health and design. It's made up of a good dozen to 20 different disciplines that have developed over the past 50 years from many different places. So names that people will use include sensory design, sensory integration, evidence-based design, patient-centered design, outcomes-related design, industrial design, horticulture design, engineering specifically for healthcare, experience design, service design, sustainability. And this is without looking at anything off of the top of my head. We're talking about having spaces that make our lives work better. So that's really fascinating. So basically, in a, in a nutshell, what we're doing is designing the space that health happens or the spaces that life happens in, in order to improve the outcomes of the people that are residing or being cared for in those spaces. Would, would that be right. a good way to sum it up? So it's the spaces, the products, and the experience, meaning everything that occurs between people and the entire process. So it's designing every part of that and designing it specifically for what we know are better outcomes. The amount of research that has been done is astronomical, astronomical, that we absolutely have hard numbers that tell us, for example, that 80% of home accidents that are treated in the emergency room are specifically from the bathroom. And that 50% of elderly people 
which is 65 and above now, and I try not to use that word, who are admitted for a fall in the bathroom, have a mortality rate within 12 months. So we're looking at something completely preventable that we know how to prevent, that we have outcomes and therefore payment directly related to, and high amounts of research that has been published in all kinds of peer-reviewed journals, and yet we're not making those changes. And that's so, what really struck yeah. me. You know, I was reading, Gail is very active on Twitter, and I was reading some of her tweets in her feed, and what really caught my eye was just, was really the level of, the, the level of connectivity between this sort of design as Gail talked about, and I cannot remember the list, but, um, <laughs> but just think better design, smarter, intuitive design that just works for people. Could we talk about outcomes for a sec? What do you, what do you mean by outcomes? Outcomes is a very old term that has been used and measured since the 1800s that basically looks at is someone healthier? Did something work? And we've been measuring this for a long, long time. But over the most recently, this has started getting tied into money, which is when people start paying attention to it. This is a Peter Drucker quote, but it's very much applicable here. The things that get measured get managed. And I'm going to change that to the things that are reimbursed get, get managed. We've had a number of entrepreneurs on the show who basically have said, you know, as soon as reimbursement starts to change, that's when things start to change. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's something called never events. And that's identified by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. And basically, they identified never events, which are things that should errors in medical care that are identifiable, serious, and com can be completely prevented. In never events, you think about surgery on the wrong body part, right? You've heard about the fact that that should never happen. You should never operate on the left leg when you were supposed to be operating on the right leg. The number two never event is falls. Number two, 30% of never events that occur in hospitals are falls in hospitals and they're preventable. So never events, you have 70% of mortality, meaning death from those events. With falls, for example, they just came out and said, we're not going to pay for the cost of falls that occur in the hospital. We're not going to pay. So what does that mean to a hospital? You're talking an average injury in a hospital, an average stay is a little under five days. A fall in a hospital adds more than six days, which means over $14,000. My 96-year-old Bubby was in the hospital <laughs> getting an MRI, and no one helped her out of the MRI machine, and she fell. And the hospital, interestingly, did everything in their power to refuse to admit that she had a hairline fracture or that she fell. If you have a never event, meaning a fall, in the hospital, you're now required 
to report it. And in over 27 states, I think I can pull the number, but you're actually required to apologize to the patient and refuse all payment. So what they do is actually completely illegal. Our family had to go in with a clipboard and a lawyer. And so it was uh, it wound up being rectified. So that was a little sidebar. Let's talk about you for a sec. I've been in, involved in healthcare, maybe just not in the right right silo of healthcare, But I, I really haven't heard very much about this. H- how did you I mean, did you grow up as a young girl thinking I want to get into design for life? I mean, how did this happen? <laughs> It's so funny, right? Because I actually talk daily now about bathrooms. And I always say, like, I never thought that I would, like, become the bathroom queen evangelizing. Um, <laughs> you would be a bathroom safety evangelist. Graduated summa cum laude and said, wow, I really want to specialize. <laughs> I have a really fortunate, depending on how we all look at our life experience, viewpoint, which is very unique, which is that I have been in healthcare media as my career, but also through that entire time, I've been a patient. I've been a caregiver. We have a genetic disease. So I'm a caregiver up and down, which you see a lot in families now. And I I was married to a surgeon. I, I like have been every side of healthcare. Each piece I got into really started in a personal way. And then because it was my profession, I started incorporating and looking into it. Then I found out that it wasn't available anywhere and I became completely obsessed. Sensory, for example, I had never heard of. I went to one of my daughter's, one of her 18 hospitalizations and uh, this particular hospital that I had fought for had these sensory rooms. I'd never seen them. And this is how a lot of parents come to sensory, for example, which is that it's being used more in the U.S. to treat children. It's more easily funded. It really got a lot of sex appeal and funding. And it's gorgeous if you put in atriums and sensory gardens and healing gardens and sensory rooms. It's very intergenerational with crocheting classes and things like that. In the UK, though, it's in every school, it's in every hospital, it's in every what we call in the U.S. nursing home, they call homes for dementia, meaning sensory rooms are everywhere in Europe, and yet we are barely reaching it. I found out about it from my daughter's one hospital, from all the hospitals she'd been at, started researching it, found out that it was widely used all over in Europe, wasn't being used here at all, even though, get this, in Alzheimer's, if you use sensory, you can get five more years of memory. Wow. Five more years. Uh, If someone understands Alzheimer's, that's five more years of life. And we're talking pennies that you can create sensory design. And so what's in there, this, what is this sensory room? You know, what what's in there? There's three kinds of sensory rooms. So there's de-escalation calming. There's um, rooms that have a lot of LED lights and interactivity. 
And then there's sensory gyms, which are being used for anyone really in development and exercise and all of that. It's really, it dates back hundreds of years to what comes very natural, which is incorporating, you know, I love this. It took until the 80s for someone to do a study and say, patients recover better from surgery if there's a window in their room. That's how far behind we've been. Now, all over the rest of the world, they have gardens, they have music, they have, you know, healing and understand the whole concept of, you know, total healing and well-being. In the U.S., it's the late 80s, and our big breakthrough was maybe we should put a window in the room. (laughs) Yeah, I can. I mean, I can kind of see that just culturally. You know, you think about how are we going to cut costs in healthcare, and the first thing probably people think of is let's let's make lots of tiny little rooms and and you know kind of cut all this you know fluffy stuff. And that's um, where it's fascinating. Yeah. Is that you actually save, like when we talked about falls, the average hospital saves over a million dollars a year by doing things that may cost nothing, like cleaning up spills and, 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 and pulling up rugs and bed rails, right? You go into a hospital, every, all the hospitals have bed rails. And yet we have tons of research that says that more people are injured in bed rails than almost anywhere in the hospital room. So, so, it's, so it's just one of those things. That, money when we know. <laughs> well, that's kind that of an hurting ex- people. Yeah, that's kind of an example. That's kind of an example yeah. of how. Of, I, there's actually a name for it where if you start, um, I forget what it is, and it's not specific to sensory design. It's kind of a term that just means, you know, once something becomes part of, um, you, you know, people start to believe in something, it's really difficult to then dispel that belief. So, you know, plus all the hospital beds have rails. So it, it's just like something has become so commonplace. And now you've got to convince everyone that the thing they thought was safe is actually unsafe, which is actually kind of hard to do. You know, if you've believed something your whole life to have somebody convince you that that's not true could be, you know, I can see how that would happen. Although at the same time, it's like, well, if a study came out that some drug was unsafe or or more safe or something like that, you know, you could snap your fingers how fast a lot of times the, that care would, the, the care protocol would change. Well, it's also, you know, like, who are we putting at the table? So, like, I'm astounded. I I mean, I'm really obsessed with this because there's just very few people uh, in in this niche. I mean, when you say um, health and technology, everyone understands that. You know, we have HIMSS, we have huge organizations, and we talk health and design, even though we have thousands and thousands of articles approved, everyone kind of looks and says, huh? 
Now, I say aging in place, which is a term I never want to use. And people understand that because they understand baby boomers. And there's, you know, they're sitting on inheriting $14 trillion. They understand the money. But even then, it's still like, well, I don't, I don't really understand, like, what does that mean? Like, how does it fit together? It's just, it, it's really been difficult changing the whole conversation. Um, you would think that with the, the studies that, that you're referencing, it would make it easier. Um, it would definitely make it easier to connect the dots between the design elements that you're talking about and, and the outcomes. Do you think it's because people just in our culture, you know, like in the in in Asia, there's all there, there's you know feng shui and zen, and, and you know it's a much more acculturated um, belief that environment matters. Whereas in the United States, you know, we we tend to go for more uh, you know hard edged things like action oriented kinds of things, and and sort of well, overlook. culture is. I mean, culture is definitely a part of it. Look at the fact that. The U.S. is the only country in the world that defines disability differently. So the World Health Organization does not say you're disabled or not disabled. They create a continuum. And that continuum is based on all three areas, which are things that you can do, which in, in the U.S. we call activities of daily living. But then they also include environment and culture. So if you're at war, if you're poor and broke and all these things, it would affect your health. And it's on a continuum. The U.S. is the only country that says, "Ah, we're not going to agree with the World Health Organization. We're going to say you're either disabled or not. It's either a yes or no question. And we're going to tie that in again to money because with social security. And that's going to define you. And then we have this whole pushback because like I know for myself that like when you asked what's gotten me into this, I'm really passionate about not being defined by my health conditions and by enabling other people to do the same. And there's so many ways to do that, but big ways of doing it is what is often called, like a lot of my publications will use terminology like hidden accessibility because nobody wants a big sign on their wall because of ugly, awful, institutional, what you see in a lot of hospital rooms, it doesn't lead to health and healing that just looks ugly and awful and not calming. And the thing is that we do have the measurements. For example, we can tell that people are taking less pain medication. We can tell that, and that's something measurable. We can tell the vitals are better. We can tell that people are spending less days in the hospital. Is part of a cultural? Yes, I would say for sure. I think a lot of it, I hope, I, I mean, I'm banking on this hope, which is that it's communication, because I know that all of my research has been going to primary literature, which can be pretty hefty. 
you know, re- reading the ADA laws, reading 30-page research reports that only deal with one particular area, you know, in a study of like five or 30 or whatever. There hasn't been a lot of communication. There hasn't been a lot of multidisciplinary in my world. If you look, sustainability became sexy, not even if it wasn't right. So even if you were more sustainable by pulling trees down from your backyard than bringing bamboo in from China, the whole concept of sustainability became sexy. So if you look at almost any major corporation, including healthcare, you'll find that there is a multidisciplinary group across the entire system that talks about the sustainability of the organization. In my hopes, in the next couple of decades, we would have that across healthcare and all other industries in the area of what we use as design for life which is design that works, that makes sense, that has that, that works better for everybody. I mean, it's just preposterous. Like, when you talk about Asia, and I was talking to a bus driver, believe it or not, about this the other day, who had lived in Asia for a long time. They use wet rooms, where the entire room gets wet, and that's where you shower and do everything else you use uh, for a bathroom. Now, it it's so much better. It's so much safer because people trip over the two inch lip into the shower. And that's completely unnecessary. The bathroom is the most dangerous room in the house. And with today's plumbing, you can put in trench drains, you can put in sloping. There's no reason ever to have a lip on your shower that you, a 15 year old completely healthy trips and falls and breaks their leg and is in a wheelchair for months over this lip that never had to be there. So basically what you're saying is what you'd like to see happen with the sensory design or the design for life, if you will, is similar to what happened with the sustainability movement, whereby every organization has a design for life committee that really evaluates how the hospital or provider entity. Exactly. And, And includes it's really looking at so experience design, which is the whole patient caregiver experience. So the patients and caregivers should be on the committees. You know, what's interesting in tying it to outcomes is that patient rooms that have a designated area for the family show significantly improved results for the patient. It's in the top five of things in rooms. So having patients and caregivers on these committees, having engineers, because there's a lot of issues that we don't like to talk about, about airflow and ener- energy use and all of that, having physicians, having nurses. Nurses are a huge part of it as far as the day, the regular part of the care that goes on hospitalists, residents, administration. It's very frightening. Interior designers. It's really frightening at how many people play the direct role in the healthcare system that are not brought to the table and kept at the table during the the design of a healthcare facility or the redesign. And all of the best cases that we look at in the U.S. in the past decade, 
all of them created groups where everyone came to the table. This concept of innovation and bringing everyone to that innovation table, not in name only. And what are some of these examples that, you know, you just mentioned in the in the best case examples? Is there one or two which are always cited as best practices? Children's hospitals. And part of that is the back to the cold, cold reality of money, which is that people tend to do more fundraising in children's hospitals. And also you have parents who want to be more active in the whole process. And for some reason that I don't really understand, but there's more of this concept that people get that a parent wants to stay in a bedroom with a child than a spouse wants to stay in the bedroom. So because of these, because of money, very active caregivers and a better sort of general understanding that the area should be better. A lot of our best case health system projects that have been done are oftentimes in children's hospitals. That's where you'll see, like, I'm currently in Minnesota, and you have Amplatz Hospital, for example, that had built sensory, they call them healing gardens or sensory gardens all over. A big project in Philadelphia, one in Maine. There's really about a dozen that are highly talked about. It doesn't mean that that's all that's been done. I did a fascinating look at some work that's being done in the South by a doctor who started all new service design in hernia clinics, off-site surgical centers that just do hernia, where you meet with someone that you have connection to 24-7 that is not from the healthcare field, comes from airlines or any other field but is your advocate. And that's what's called service design, which is, at the end, the patient caregiver experience. And so it's looking at each one of these, because by separating them out and saying, we're just going to look at the sensory aspect, or we're only going to look at the flow, right? The, The Six Sigma lean engineering, right? flow of the design, or we're only going to look at signage, it just becomes, I mean, it's ridiculous. It becomes redundant, more costly, and more areas get lost. So instead, if we say, what are all the main priorities of all of the players in healthcare? And most of the time, you'll find that you can hit the main priorities of people at the same time. For example, if you put in an interior sensory garden, they have found that it reduces pain, it increases patient responses to the patient surveys on outcomes, it increases employee retention, which is a very big issue for healthcare, keeping top-notch healthcare providers and other members of their staff, and it increases caregivers' likelihood of recommending a hospital. One design element can hit 10 different goals if everyone's brought to the table. 
we had been talking earlier about how we were going to give an example of how this kind of design leads to better patient outcomes. And I have written down six. (laughs) So we have covered this topic thoroughly. We talked about how having patient family rooms really improves outcomes. We talked about airflow. We talked about sensory rooms or gardens. We talked about focusing on preventing falls. We talked about service design relative to the, the hernia clinic or just making sure that people feel cared for throughout their process. And um, one of them actually that we had talked about earlier didn't come up um, now, but uh, but I know there's a lot of research on as well is noise and, and reducing the noise level in institutions. Yeah, it's they found that both from the patient side and from other sides. So could you explain, Gail, what does Sincerit do? Why would someone call you and, and who might call you for help? Sincerit is at the heart we connect and engage. We are a multi-platform media company, but we've grown much larger than that to being events, design services, basically anywhere that people along the spectrum are, we provide a presence to be the one call for health and design. While certainly anybody can call us and and we service a lot of communities and patients and the baby boomers are a very, very large market and a very large group of what we do. The truth is that a lot of our phone calls come from People who recognize that the the baby boomer change, which is so significant, they're sitting on inheriting $14 trillion that they intend on spending on themselves. 85% are going to be spending it on, on changing their homes. Completely changes the dynamics of health care all the way from where they want health care to what type of health care. It is at the point when someone says, we want to figure out how we need to either create our new products and spaces or redesign or reposition our products and spaces so that we can engage the baby boomers and simultaneous markets that are with the same changes, which goes everywhere from people who are pregnant to anything in between. If someone is involved in product design manufacturing, interior design, or they are a healthcare institution, effectively what they should do is, is give you a call and you can help them strategize relative to how they could either make sure that they are capitalizing on their reimbursements if they're in the healthcare space or satisfy a very growing market, i.e. the baby boomers primarily, if they are more in the product space. Would that sum it up? Yeah, we do everything from the moment of the idea to having 20 different platforms that provide the ability for people to connect to the correct audiences. And so it's both the personal and professional. Healthcare alone has become an extraordinarily competitive space. If you had to select one make or break difference between the systems that are going to make it and those that aren't, 
or the pharmacies that are going to make it or not, or the products that are going to make it or not. It's those that understand and reach and engage the baby boomers and those that are related to it. It's, it's just everywhere. You solve that one problem, and I guarantee you that whatever you're doing in health in healthcare, you'll be you'll be able to be a top leader in the top 10% over the coming decades by focusing on that one issue. The advantages of pursuing this kind of design seem to be a, a triad. One of them is obviously to maximize reimbursements. The, the second one would be to improve patient outcomes. Uh, and then the third is to competitively differentiate Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about a little bit of actionable advice. So if, if somebody would want to do something next week in order to improve outcomes of the of the patients that they're caring for, what, what would be a couple of things that you might recommend? You want to have a safety program. There are things that you can do immediately, like next week, making sure that spills are being cleaned up on a schedule, that clutter is being cleaned up, that there is scheduled trips to the bathroom with rounding, and that that occurs regularly. I would take that off of the charge nurse and put it somewhere else because that is immediately going to... (laughs) They, the, many people know about the Joint Commission, which implements a lot in healthcare. And the Joint Commission started a health to prevent falls. And they were immediately able to prevent 60% of falls, saving hospitals over almost $2 million a year, implementing it immediately. So take down the bed rails. Make sure there's no tripping hazards. The floors not only dry and clean, but flat. Change your lighting. Decrease your noise, as you mentioned, which can be very easily done. Have a checklist that's available for any of the nurses or anyone who comes into the room for the caregivers to make sure that everyone in the room is following some safety guidelines. I've never seen it done and I'm constantly, it doesn't cost any money. Everyone has a whiteboard now or in their hospital rooms. I just think that a fall prevention checklist should automatically become part of it. I've seen a number of fall checklists, actually. Uh, we were working on um, a, a product for a client and, and seen a bunch of these fall prevention checklists, which are available online. So basically what your your suggestion might be is to ensure that those fall prevention checklists, which are obviously widely available on the Internet, if I manage to stumble across it, those are featured prominently or posted prominently in, in patients' rooms so people don't right. forget Right, in the them. room... And part of the plan and part of the checkoff systems. Anyone who's in healthcare knows that there's a system, particularly with sign outs. Sign outs are a very dangerous time, whether it's medication, patients not being seen, whatever. And so one of the solutions to the whole sign out issue has become this innocuous whiteboard. 
and that sort of becomes the center of communication for the patient, caregiver, and team. In my mind, that hub would automatically include what is the plan for that patient to make sure that there's not falling because falling is not one item. It's if the patient is dizzy, if they're taking six or more medications, if they have had surgery in the past 24 hours, if they've reached a certain age, there's a lot of non-environmental factors that impact falling. Then there are 10 to 15% that are only environmental. So it's a mix. What I'm suggesting is that in every patient room, you know, it'll say, here's your nurse, here's your attending, here's your medications, here's your safety plan. And everyone knows what it is. And everyone knows who to call if you, if you need to go to the bathroom, who's, who's going to watch out for what the plan is, taking these design issues and putting them front and center as a total priority. I think that this this would save billions of dollars if people implemented this immediately. That is very worthwhile advice, Gail. I thank you so much for being on the program today. I learned a lot, I have to say. It's my pleasure. Information on how to reach Gail Zotz can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com slash 15. There you will find links to Gail's website, her Twitter handle, as well as information about other really cool things that she has been involved in. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes, and if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.